History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 68, Campaigns of Victory. Being the story of the aftermath of Megiddo, and how Menkepera Tutmose III organized the lands of Canaan and Palestine and Israel under his rule now that rebellion had been crushed. Today's episode is the second, or third if you count our dramatic reading of Megiddo, in the story of Tutmose's imperial campaigns, which are the major story of his first few years of independent rule. This episode is brought to you by Andrew Spoon, Royfield Brown, and Russell Walton, who kindly donated to the show. If you feel like supporting the History of Egypt podcast, simply go along to our website, egyptianhistorypodcast.com, and click support the show. You'll also find a whole bunch of blog posts, updates, and image galleries, which go along with the various episodes. Now then, let's go back to Tutmose III. December of 1473, Tutmose III was back in Egypt. The weather was cooling down for the year, but as winter set in, the pace of life began to pick up speed. The floodwaters which had covered the fields since August were receding now, and the fertile soil was being revealed once again. Planting season was beginning, and the farmers were heading out into the fields to begin their work. In the Nile Delta, that immense swathe of greenery at the northern end of Egypt, many farmers were heading out into the fields that belonged, technically, to the royal government. Since the days of the Old Kingdom, the delta had been (coughs) fertile ground for the crown to set up its estates. Crop farms, orchards, vineyards, all the production facilities that go along with them. The delta was a growing area, in more ways than one. Imagine the surprise of the farmers working out here when they saw a group emerging from the Sinai Desert. Not your regular traders or military companies. This was a group of clearly wealthy and prominent individuals. They had chariots with them, a bit battered but still splendid. They were dressed in exotic fashions, more on that in a moment. And they were unmistakably controlled, imprisoned by the company of Egyptian soldiers that marched alongside them. Oh well, you might think, just more prisoners from the war in Canaan, no big deal. Ah, but these are not any old prisoners. These are the elites, the nobility of Canaanite and Syrian towns, the sort of folks who, theoretically, should be lying dead in the dust of Megiddo far away, where they had rebelled. What were the Canaanites doing in Egypt? 
As the Canaanite delegation passed by the fields, the local Egyptians would have been struck by two things. First of all, these elites were haggard. Men and women clearly starved for nutrition over a period of time. People who had seen real hardship. Secondly, despite their haggard appearance, they were still dressed finely in costly linen and sheepskins over their shoulders. Clearly, they were on their way to some important function. The Egyptian farmers were watching the passage of men and women who, realistically, may not have known whether they had very long to live or not. Having rebelled against Egyptian authority and raised banners of war in northern Canaan, they now came as defeated prisoners. We are told that the Canaanites came to Egypt to offer their submission and their subservience. How would the king respond, though? The Canaanites came before the king. They were dressed in their foreign finery, if you will, an unusual set of costumes as far as the Egyptians were concerned, which they took care to represent in tombs and inscriptions. The Canaanites were dressed in what we might call galabeas or jalabeas. These are linen robes which are somewhat form-fitting, and they're still often worn by men in the Middle East today. The Canaanite versions, as far as the Egyptians depicted them, were quite slender and slim, tailored almost to their body shape. We're not talking lycra form-hugging here, but you'd get the sense that these were tailored, well-dressed men. The hems of their jalabeas were richly embroidered, possibly studded with gems or pearls, to give a sense of finery and elite nobility. Over their shoulders, though, they wore something that was foreign even to Canaan. The Canaanites, perhaps trying to replicate their rustic origins of their ancestors, wore sheepskins over their shoulders. This had been borrowed from Mesopotamian fashion, and it's possible that the Canaanite leaders did this in order to hark back to earlier, more glorious days, the days of people like the Babylonians, Hammurabi, those kind of folks. Anyway, in all their strange finery, the Canaanite delegation came into the court of Tutmos III, and they came before the throne of Egypt. They were likely forced to bow, heads pressed to the smooth flagstones of the courtyard, and they offered this beseechment. They said, Please give us breath, O Lord. The foreigners of Regenu, that is Canaan and Syria, will not rebel again. A very simple plea, a plea for mercy. But what would the king do? the III was magnanimous, but he ordered that they take the following oath. They agreed to do so, and the oath was as follows. We will not again do evil against Menkepera, may he live forever, our Lord, in our lifetime. For we have seen his might. He has given us his breath as he wishes. His father has done it, that is, Amun-Ra. It is not an act of mere mortals. We shall not act again evilly against Tutmos III in our lifetime. A straightforward oath, surely. the III is recognized as something more than mortal, and who on earth could possibly think to challenge a divine being? The underlying message, though, is still very clear. The Canaanites were being given a second chance. There would not be a third. Basically, these people were compelled obedience forevermore. Any breaking of this oath would have been the uttermost sacrilege against Tutmose III and his royal authority. Surely, the Canaanites realized that the mere opportunity of giving this oath 
was in a way a pardon for their crimes. Well, maybe pardon is too strong a word, but something like amnesty. There was still going to be a price beyond the oath. There is no mention of any executions or severe punishments, but some of the Canaanite leaders would have had to leave their children behind in Egypt as hostages. This became a standard practice in the Egyptian empire as a way of compelling loyalty. I'll talk about that in a later episode, but suffice to say, as the delegation of Canaanites came to the palace of Tutmos III, many of them, whether they realized it or not, were coming to their new home. With the taking of the oath, the Canaanite submission was complete. The Battle of Megiddo, after seven long months, was finally over. In Egypt, there would have been celebrations, at the very least, in the royal cities. Prayers of thanksgiving for the might of Tutmos III and the benevolence of his father Amun-Ra, for surely the victory was proof, if nothing else, of the gods' utmost favour of this young, audacious, and vital king of Egypt. As the Canaanite delegation left Egypt once again to return to their homes, Tutmos III was faced with a dilemma. How was he going to organize Canaan? This question must have posed a unique challenge to the Egyptian royalty. For the first time, they were being asked to rule over a territory that may be, quite naturally, hostile to them in every respect. Unlike Nubia, which was long used to the raids and campaigns of Egyptian rulers, Canaan was still a relative newcomer to the case of Egyptian severity. In fact, they were far more used to Egyptian trade, which had been going on since about 3000 BCE, than they were to Egyptian swords. So, how was Tutmos going to deal with this situation? The first thing that Tutmos realized he needed to do was visit Canaan once again. Unlike the days of Tutmos I, where it was sufficient to show up once every five or ten years, stomp your feet, shake your spears, and compel some tribute, this was now a world in which there were more enemies than before, and so the king had to make more regular visits to Canaan. There were greater threats to Egyptian domination of Canaan, and, realistically, the Canaanites had proven that they were more than willing to take matters into their own hands if it meant being independent from foreign authority. So, almost immediately as the Canaanite delegation departed Egypt heading back to their homes, Tutmos III was in preparations for another campaign. Tutmos III probably organized his campaigns from a town called Peru Nefer. The name Peru Nefer literally means good travels or bon voyage. So it's an auspicious place to start your campaigns from, I think, right? The town of Peru Nefer goes by another name, or at least it used to. And it's an interesting choice of town, all things considered, from what we've learned in the past few episodes. You see, Peru Nefer used to be the town of Avaris. Avaris was the capital of the Hyksos foreigners, those invaders that had conquered Egypt and dominated it during the end of the Middle Kingdom. When the warriors of King Amosa finally broke into Avaris and expelled the Hyksos, they supposedly destroyed the town utterly, raising it to the ground as a symbolic act of destruction and expulsion of their enemies. And yet, just 60 years later, we find the town of Avaris rechristened, repurposed, and renewed under the auspices of King Tutmos III, and possibly Hatshepsut. The town of Peru Nefer grew quickly during these days. 
It was located at an ideal point. It was on the eastern edge of the Nile Delta, on a branch of the River Nile that connected down to the Mediterranean. So, it was a very good point for any caravans coming across the Sinai Desert to reach Egypt, and it was a very good point for any ships coming from Byblos, Cyprus, or Crete to come down towards the royal cities. In other words, it was ideally located to be a centre of trade for ships and people coming in or going out of Egypt. Peru Nefer quickly became indispensable to the royal government. No less than three palaces grew up here during the time of Thutmose III. Unfortunately, because of the wet soil, any papyrus archives that might have been there have long since disintegrated. But there's more than one way to find out what went down in this city. Almost all the most significant work done in the town of Avaris slash Peru Nefer during the last 20 to 30 years has been under the guidance of a chap named Manfred Biertak. Manfred Biertak is Austrian. He was formerly the professor of Egyptology at the University of Vienna, and he was the director of the Austrian Archaeological Institute in Cairo. During his career, he has become the expert on the town of Avaris and Peru Nefer, and it's his work that I present to you today. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. During the time of Thutmose III, the number one priority going on at the town of Peru Nefer was the housing and supply of soldiers. This was essentially the launching point for expeditions out into the Near East. Although technically it wasn't the border of Egypt, that was a town called Charu, the town of Peru Nefer seems to have become a depot and supply centre for the soldiers and troops who the kings raised in order to lead their campaigns. We find in the town of Peru Nefer great magazines and granaries, essentially storehouses for food, weapons, equipment, anything you might need on campaign. There are also the remains of camps, with little fireplaces dug into the ground that survive today. There are small ovens for things like baking and cooking, particularly bread and meat. Essentially, it's all the remains you could expect from a military town in which a great number of people are living for an extended period of time. Unfortunately, that could also come with a cost. Alongside the benign domestic affairs, there is also evidence for the short and hard life that these men lived in in the town of Peru Nefer. Because the soldiers were living in close proximity to one another, and also probably to farmland and animals, it was only natural that from time to time diseases would break out in the camps and in the towns. The result is that archaeologists have found mass graves, huge collections of 
probably soldiers, who died around the same time and were buried in large pits. Although it's a really unfortunate way to go to the afterlife, and today mass graves are seen as something truly reprehensible or horrible, these men were given communal offerings, huge pits filled with pottery and the remains of ritual meals made by celebrants who wanted to send them into the afterlife as best as they could. So it's not like these men went to their graves uncared for and unloved. It was simply that they went to their graves in the least ideal circumstances. People would be afraid to touch the bodies, worried that they would somehow get sick too, and that's justifiable. But the locals did what they could for their comrades, and so the men went to their graves as best as was possible. Well, maybe not all of them, actually. There is one particularly interesting grave at the town of Perunefa. It's a small grave with just two bodies in it, but these bodies are lying face down, and on top of them, someone has put stones and smashed pots. It almost looks as if these two were condemned in some way. Although there's no evidence that they died violently, they might have been strangled. And Professor Beatark suggests that these might have been the victims of executions intended to maintain discipline amongst the soldiers. If he's right, well, the Egyptian army seems to have been just as violent as the Roman legion when it came to maintaining order and proper discipline. Thankfully, Professor Beatark is one of those new school archaeologists who gets just as involved in anthropology as he does in things like dirt, pottery, and artwork. Anthropological examination of the bodies has shown that not all of these soldiers were Egyptian. Some of them were actually Nubian, and there's plenty of Nubian pottery in the town of Perunefa as well. This suggests that the army of Tutmos III was a somewhat cosmopolitan army, with battalions both from Egypt and from the colonies down in the lands of Nubia. Fascinating stuff, and it's all thanks to excavations at the town of Perunefa. So, Tutmos III began to prepare his army in this town, in these circumstances. Surrounded by his soldiers and his generals, he made preparations for his next campaign into Canaan, a campaign that wasn't necessarily going to be the bloodbath that Megiddo had been, but something more along the lines of a tour of duty, ensuring that the region was quiet and pacified, and that they were giving their tribute properly to Egypt once more. In other words, it was more of a policing action than a military action. But still, when it came to chart up his achievements in life, Tutmos III referred to all of these tours of duty as his campaigns of victory, they were supposedly intended to extend the borders of Egypt, and while not every campaign might have resulted in that, they all resulted in some new level of tribute coming from that part of the world. Within weeks, possibly even days, of the Canaanite delegation offering their submission to the king, and ending the Battle of Megiddo formally, Tutmos III was leaving Egypt once again and heading back into Canaan. It was approximately March or April of 1472 BCE, being the cusp of Regnal Year 23 and Regnal Year 24. So, we've now moved into the 24th Regnal Year of Tutmos III. 
The second, third, and fourth campaigns of victory were far less impressive than the Battle of Megiddo, or some of his later campaigns, but they were foundational steps for much larger achievements later on. The reason I want to take a little bit of time just to talk about these small campaigns is because they give us a good glimpse at what the Egyptian priorities in Canaan actually were. We talk about them founding an empire, but that's a pretty loose term. The Egyptians were far less interested in cultural homogeneity than they simply were in stuff. Essentially, obedience and warfare were all well and good, but tribute was even better. So. What were Tutmosis' methods for compelling this kind of obedience and submission? One of the first and most obvious things that Tutmos took on these campaigns was food. When he came to a town, say the town of Gaza or Joppa, he compelled the locals to give him wheat, grains, barley, that kind of thing. These were often sent back not to Egypt, but to supply depots that were set up in the lands of Canaan. Take for instance the town of Joppa. Joppa is notable as the subject of a story called The Capture of Joppa, which is a delightful little tale that I will present to you soon. Joppa, after its conquest by the Egyptians, became a supply depot which was used in future campaigns. Storehouses, magazines, were set up here in order to supply troops coming through the region or living in the nearby towns. In other words, Tutmos III and his generals were starting to do what all good generals should do, that is, take care of logistics. This is summarized in a quote from the late great general George S. Patton of the USA. He said, Gentlemen, the officer who does not know his communications and his supplies just as well as his tactics is totally useless. The essential gist is that an army and a general is completely useless if it is not supplied. You can have a thousand men in a territory, and they might be very skilled warriors, but without adequate weapons and adequate food, they aren't going anywhere, and if they do, they're not doing it very effectively. The Egyptians were aware of this principle. They took care for supplies as often as possible, and the Near East becomes noticeable for having a network of supply depots across various regions. The result was that every campaign that Tutmos undertook was slightly easier in terms of supplies than the one which went before it. So, that's the first essential component of the second, third, and fourth campaigns. They laid the groundwork for future military actions that could go further than any Egyptian king had done before. Secondly, Tutmos took consideration for the people living in these regions. He was well aware of the possibility of rebellion, after all, he had just put one down. And so, when Tutmos III came to the different towns and fortresses that were scattered throughout Canaan, he met with the local leaders and compelled their obedience. He could do this in one of two ways. He could either show up with his soldiers and attack, or he could show up with his soldiers and say, Surely, it's better that you're my friend now, rather than my enemy later. It's not hard to see why this might have been quite an attractive proposition to the locals. After all, they had just watched an entire generation of nobility go down at the Siege of Megiddo. So when Tutmos III showed up with his troops, you can bet there were more than a few who were willing to play ball. But Tutmos was not gullible. He knew that just because a town was a tributary today did not mean they would still be loyal tomorrow. And so he instituted the system that we now know and understand as the hostage-taking system. 
the children of the nobility were frequently sent back to Egypt as hostages for the good behaviour of their parents and their families. This wasn't necessarily a hard life. They were kept in the royal palaces and given training in Egyptian customs. In fact, it was probably quite a comfortable life, possibly even more comfortable than they were used to back home. But nevertheless, there was always that threat hanging over. If there was rebellion in Canaan, children were going to die. This actually had a secondary effect, though. As the princes and princesses of these towns came to Egypt, lived in the palace, learned hieroglyphics and Egyptian religious customs, they slowly became accustomed to the Egyptian lifestyle. When they were finally sent back home, perhaps because their father or mother had died and they were to take up their office, the towns in Canaan suddenly found themselves with a ruler who was trained in Egypt, used to Egypt, could speak Egyptian, and to all intents and purposes, kind of looked like an Egyptian. In other words, Thutmose III instituted a long-term plan for controlling the region, by taking the children, training them in Egyptian ways, and then sending them back. The result was a period of stability that is relatively uncommon in this part of the world. Now, all of this was taking place over many years. It didn't happen overnight, per se. But you can sort of sum it up as the foundations of the Egyptian empire, which were going to last for a couple of centuries. So whatever work Tutmos was doing day by day in these few campaigns that he went on, around years 23, 24, 25 or so, he was laying work that was going to have a long-lasting effect. Whether he realised this or not is probably beyond our means to understand, but the fact is, this was one of the key turning points in the whole Egyptian perspective on Canaan, Syria, and the lands around them. There was a sort of knock-on effect going on here too, though. As the Egyptians pacified Canaan, brought it under loyalty, and compelled its obedience, they were inadvertently setting the scene for more stable trade and movement throughout the region. The result is that Canaan suddenly becomes a bit of a melting pot. From the reign of Thutmose III onwards, Canaan sees a hell of a lot more movement of peoples and trade throughout its regions than it necessarily did quite before. I don't want to attribute this to Thutmose III per se, but I just want to give you a sense of what was going on here. As Canaan came into a new political situation, the traders and the peoples living there recognised what was happening, and started to respond accordingly. So in a very real way, even though the Egyptians didn't take over Canaan and turn it into Egypt Part 2, they had a very profound effect on the society of that region. Now, Thutmose didn't leave a narrative of these few campaigns, like he did with the Battle of Megiddo. There are sort of peaks and troughs in Tutmos's descriptions of campaigns. He'll mark out one for really intense description, and then there'll be three, four, five that go by without any specific details. The second, third, and fourth campaigns are basically that. We don't know exactly what he did, we can only get the gist from the later situation and from the archaeology. If I had to summarise it briefly, just to round out the episode, I would say that Tutmose's second, third, and fourth campaigns into Canaan looked like this. Tutmose and his soldiers would show up in the region. Anyone who resisted them was quickly put to the sword, and there is some evidence for a couple of towns being burnt to the ground around this point in time. Most people, most princes rather, seemed to have got the idea that they should obey and tribute and hostages began to flow back towards Egypt in a very, very quick cycle. 
but Tatmos was also playing a long game, and so he also started to take supplies from the locals. Things like grain, livestock, weapons, that kind of thing. These were consolidated into small towns that became supply depots. The supply depots would feed the Egyptian troops who were living in the region as garrisons, and they would also help to support the armies that later came on in campaigns. Essentially, these few campaigns into the region laid the groundwork for a much bigger accomplishment, a much bigger plan that Tutmos was working to. You see, even though Megiddo had fallen and the Canaanites had come to Egypt to offer their submission, they were not necessarily the ones that Tutmos was truly concerned with. The Battle of Megiddo had been instigated on the machinations of two distinct political powers. One was the Prince of Kadesh, a town in the north of Syria, which was a stronghold and trading centre for the whole region. Kadesh was trying to increase its influence, and the Battle of Megiddo had not removed that threat. Secondly, there was a greater threat even beyond Kadesh, and this was the Empire of Mitanni. Tutmos III recognised that the Battle of Megiddo was partly a result of Kadesh and Mitanni trying to increase their influence in Syria and Canaan. And so, the second, third and fourth campaigns that he led into this region were really, for him, just laying the groundwork, a prologue or prelude to a much larger project, the destruction of Kadesh and the invasion of the Empire of Mitanni. But that's going to have to wait for a couple of episodes. I know, I'm a terrible tease, but what can I do? In the next episode, we're going to take a slight detour to explore a situation that occurred during this general period, but at an unknown date. It's an account, a story, called The Capture of Joppa, and if I had to describe it in a way that would give you a sense of what's coming, you might call it the Egyptian equivalent of the Trojan horse. So, look forward to that episode coming up soon on the History of Egypt podcast.